This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast where we help you learn to invest in 45 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividends so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name's Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited, as always. This time for two reasons. Yes. First reason, we're back in a studio. Yes. <laughs> Which is nice. I've emerged from under my recording blanket. Yes. And I might bring it into the studio next time. because Please I'm... don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> totally unnecessary. But uh, <laughs> the second reason is we've got a, a return guest, and yep. a guest who's an expert in an area that we're both really interested in, and a lot of the Equity Mates community are interested in and that's ethical investing yes so i guess without further ado it's great to introduce adam verway back to the show adam welcome great thanks for having me back so adam started in the ethical investing space with a nine-year stint at australian ethical investment and was a candidate for the greens in 2013 federal election he is the co-founder of future super started that back in 2014 Adam is passionate about the future of Australia's climate change policy and has a long history in the ethical investment space with a lot of experience in superannuation, ESG or environmental, social and governance research and also constructing ethical share market indices. So a lot to unpack and we're very keen to touch base with where things are at in this space because as uh, Ren said just a moment ago, very hot topic at the moment within our community, Adam. So very excited to get stuck in. Yeah, great. Looking forward to it. Now, Adam, before we unpack all that, we always like to start these interviews with a game. And last time we had a bit of a twist for your game. Rather than playing overrated or underrated, we played ethical or unethical, where we threw out a company or an industry and we got your thoughts on whether they fell into the ethical side or the unethical side. We got great response last time, so we're bringing it back again. <laughs> so, um, are you up for playing ethical or unethical? Uh, yeah, this is my favourite game. <laughs> <laughs> great. All right. Well, we've put our thinking caps on for this one and we, we have some ones that might be a little bit controversial, so I'm looking forward to the discussions. Well, we'll start controversial. Ethical or unethical pharmaceutical companies? I think the starting point for pharmaceutical companies is that they're ethical. Like their business is healthcare 
and they're trying to sell products that make us live healthier and have longer lives. So I think, you know, if you ignore that all pharmaceutical companies can act in all different sorts of ways, then I think the starting point is that they're ethical. And then obviously the way to make any industry sound evil is to add the word big. <laughs> to yeah. the front of it. So, if you, you know, uh, I think people think big pharma is bad just the same as big anything uh, sounds bad. Uh, but I think, you know, they're, they're trying to help us live healthier lives. And so, you know, I think we can just think healthcare is a good thing. Let's have more of it. Fair enough. I was going to add a twist to that and ask you pharmaceutical companies working on coronavirus vaccines, but you uh, you said they were ethical, so I'm just going to assume those ones are ethical as well. Yeah, and who doesn't want a vaccine so we can go back to socialising without the distancing? Yeah. <laughs> this next one is a little bit out of left field, but the context is my housemate works in the industry and wanted to get your thoughts on it. So ethical or unethical, DHL? Well, I would think it's ethical. DHL would be a very carbon-intensive business. So they would run airlines, they'd have a fleet of ships and things like that, things that use a lot of carbon. But they're running a necessary service. I think we're all relying on uh, companies like DHL uh, right now to help us at the moment. So, I mean, I would say ethical. It feels like a very ethically neutral company. This is a sort of company that our ethical analysts hate looking at because it doesn't feel like there's <laughs> enough interesting from an, a, a negative element or a positive element to look at with a company like this. But but do you have some inside information? Should I be thinking a certain way based off... Um, I'm sure if we said? got <laughs> Alex Housemate on, he could, he could bring some news to the table. No, no, no inside information on equity, mates. We have a strong <laughs> policy against inside information. <laughs> we'll take this offline. Uh, <laughs> ethical or unethical Amazon? Amazon. Yeah, I am definitely unethical. And maybe maybe I can go on a bit of a, a little bit of a rant. Please do, one. please do. Love a rant. Yeah. So, I mean, Amazon has always just been known for its really aggressive approach to business and for being quite an exceptionally poor uh, treater of its workers. And I think it'd be good to talk about how, how Amazon has been as a business in particular over the last few months. Because I think COVID-19 and how businesses have reacted to it have been like a really great case study in business ethics and how companies choose to balance people versus profit. And many companies have faced massive disruptions. Their revenues are down. There's a lot of uncertainty. And I know our team at Future Super have been doing a lot of work reaching out to companies in the ASX 100. And most Australian companies have prioritised the health of their workforce. They've tried to lay off staff as a last resort. And they've made announcements uh, more recently that they won't be paying dividends if it comes at the cost of staff or at the cost of having a strong balance sheet. Uh, and then you've got companies like Telstra, who, for instance, were going through a long series of layoffs as they were restructuring their business and then chose to put that all on hold just so that their staff could have a bit more certainty over this particular time. So you've got all these case studies, particularly in Australia, of companies actually trying to do the right thing in a time when their revenues are down and things are hard. And then you've got Amazon. Like Amazon isn't struggling. Like business is booming. Like a pandemic is almost the best thing that could have happened from a business perspective for Amazon. But it's coming at this huge cost to their warehouse staff. So there are reportedly over a thousand Amazon warehouse workers who have contracted coronavirus and they've had eight staff who have died from it already. Their workers are scared to go to work. But they're also scared of being sacked for whistleblowing, which, which a number of staff have been. And their warehouse staff have no access to paid sick leave. And in this same two months, uh, Jeff Bezos has seen his personal wealth go up by $41 billion. And then, you know, like it would cost just $1 billion of that for all Amazon staff to have two weeks of paid sick leave. 
like one billion, and Jeff Bezos could still have grown his wealth by forty billion dollars over that same two months. So, which is just incredible. To put it into more context, I saw a stat today that said it would take the average Amazon worker over a million years to earn the same amount of money that Jeff Bezos has made in just the last two months, like over a million years. Wow. Uh, so I think it's just like I just think when I when I know this, I just think there's just no clearer example of a company that puts profit ahead of people than, than, than Amazon. So I think this, in terms of unethical companies, in, in my view, this sort of puts Amazon right up the, right up the top. Wow, pretty compelling rant. It's <laughs> <laughs> a compelling rant, yeah. No, no sick leave in America just blows my mind. It just, it's such a reminder how lucky we are in Australia. Yeah, well, well the thing at Amazon is um, they announced that they were giving uh, paid sick leave to their staff, but it's not available to their warehouse workers, who are the ones who are just most affected. And also, like, some of the more vulnerable people in terms of the impact of coronavirus. You know, job security for our low-income workers is, is really, really important, um, and they just have no job security. They're going to turn up when they're sick as well. Yeah, you'd think from a business standpoint, it would make more sense to offer paid sick leave so they're containing spreads. People aren't sick but going to work because they need to get a paycheck and infecting other workers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just got to think about what is the mindset of a company uh, that chooses not to do that. Yeah, we could keep talking about this, but <laughs> yeah. let's move on a little bit closer to home. Australia is obviously a big lithium producer and Obviously, you mine it, but then its uses are sometimes ethical. So ethical or unethical lithium miners? I think generally the, this this is ethical. So, I mean, as you say, like mining is generally not very popular with ethical investors. And I think even uh, when we spoke last time, you both said that uh, you're not too keen on mining stocks either. But generally, you make an exception for lithium mining because of where it's used. So we think about uh, powering electric vehicles, about uh, being used in batteries and then helping to reduce resource use through that way. You know, the uses of lithium uh, tend to be quite positive. So I think when, when we look at it as Future Super, we're usually thinking about two things. One is what type of lithium mining is it? Is it a sort that uh, has a higher uh, environmental impact because it's sort of using a fracking type process or is it the type that has less of an impact because it's using salt pans as a process? And also what is the end use for the lithium? Like is it going into smartphones or is it going into batteries and electric vehicles and that sort of thing? So last time we spoke, I think this was pretty clear cut for you, but at the time it was falling in and out of other sustainability, I guess, indexes. Ethical or unethical Facebook? Uh, yeah, I don't think anything's changed, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're users. I don't, <laughs> I don't think they've turned a corner in any way. I mean, they still just push the ethical boundaries and they seem to have a view at Facebook that they try and get away with things like privacy breaches or not shutting down white nationalist content and then only respond when there's an outrage. And there just doesn't appear to be any will to change it. Um, so that's still in the uh, that's still in the unethical category for me. So then a follow up to that, um, we've got fifty percent of the Fang stocks are unethical at the moment. <laughs> if we include Netflix and Google, where do those two sit, and do any Fang stocks appear on the ethical side for you? Yeah, so we invest in uh, Future Super invest in both Apple and Netflix. I mean, Apple's done a lot of work both to improve its image and to actually improve the way it works. You know, their supply chains are far better monitored than any other sort of tech company. They consistently score, you know, sort of A grades, B grades in sort of the human rights watch type reports. And they're sourcing almost 100% of their uh, energy for their operations through renewable energy. So a company like Apple's doing really well. 
I mean, Netflix has some governance issues, which I think um, excludes it from a few of the more ESG-type portfolios. But when we look at it from a more sort of what is its business and what is the purpose of its business, you know, Netflix uh, qualifies for us. So, Adam, I want to move to an industry that is very popular in the community and amongst young investors. Ethical mm-hmm. or unethical marijuana stock? I think this one's ethical for me. Phew. I'm, I'm, <laughs> but it is an interesting question. So we, um, the ethical investment community isn't just like uh, one community with one type of ethics. You know, there are progressive green voter type ethical investors. There's religious type ethical investors, all sorts of things. And I think this is one which is a little bit, it is quite divisive. But I generally think, I mean, marijuana stocks aren't providing recreational marijuana. They're usually providing a healthcare service. And I just think uh, providing appropriate healthcare is is an ethical thing to do. So yeah, they, they fall in the ethical category for me. But it would be interesting to ask one of the more religious type ethical investors where they feel about this, given they tend to be healthcare stocks rather than recreational drug stocks. So this one's more of a, an asset class, if you were to classify it as an asset, but uh, ethical or unethical cryptocurrency and where does that fall in the future super investment strategy? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we definitely don't invest in it. It's very speculative (laughs) and it's also very carbon intensive. Yeah, but I don't know if you review, do do you review have investments in cryptocurrencies? I've got some exposure to Bitcoin. Yeah, I've got, um, a, I've got a little percentage just in case I'm wrong yeah, and it's, it's a it, is, it is a thing. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that sort of highlighted to me more than anything that a, that a bubble existed was, you know, on my cricket team, I'm known as sort of the investment guy. And at the start of the last season, they all just started asking me, you know, like, can you set us up with a Bitcoin account? Can you set us up with a Bitcoin account? <laughs> and it's like, why do you want to do this? They didn't know why. They just said, everyone's making money. I'm not making money. I don't understand it, but you've got to get me in. And just every weekend, just standing out on a field, having to field questions about Bitcoin. <laughs> and I think there's no, there's no bigger proof of a bubble than people just wanting to pile money into something that they can't understand. And that's, that's where cryptocurrencies fit for me. It's uh, a whole bunch of people trying to make money because they think everyone else is making money and they're missing out. Yeah, the energy usage in crypto is phenomenal. Like it is just astronomical. Mm. So last one from us, Adam, and this was a bit of a controversial one last last time and it hit a bit close to home for one of the two of us. <laughs> <laughs> and so I want to bring it back and see if uh, your thoughts have changed at all. Ethical or unethical Woolworths? Yeah, so, so Woolworths, still haven't yet got rid of their pokies business, right? Ah, uh, it's in the pipeline. <laughs> it's, in the- <laughs> it's in the pipeline. So, uh, it's, it's in the pipeline, but it's been delayed. And so they still are Australia's largest poker machine company. And it still makes up a huge amount of their revenue. Like I think pre-COVID, was it about 10 or 11% of their revenue came from poker machines. So, you know, still unethical for me. They still haven't got rid of that gambling business. And I think even if they do get rid of that gambling business, and I'll, I'll chuck Coles into this example as well, I think Coles and Woolies have real problems with their supply chain. They Coles and Woolies control sort of 80% of the food supply chains in Australia and they have a huge amount of influence on it. And there's a lot of problems in Australia's supply chain. And the more pressure they have on that supply chain means just, uh, you know, the activities within it just aren't great. The human rights within Australia's food supply chain are not great. Uh, there's sexual exploitation within that supply chain as well. And I think Coles and Woolies need to take some responsibility uh, for that, given they control 80% of that. So, 
There you go. I dumped them both in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think uh, we'll we'll leave that conversation. <laughs> but to close this one out, before we we jumped on on the conversation this evening, you emailed through a company that you wanted to get our thoughts on, and I don't think we've ever flipped this game back onto the no. interviewee to ask the question. But I know you have a stock that you want to get our thoughts on, Adam. Yeah, yeah. This is this is um, this is good fun, hey? Yes. This is a great game. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, so one, one of the companies that we've been putting a lot of thought into lately is Tesla. So really great opportunity to get your views on whether Tesla is uh, ethical or unethical. Well, the CEO doesn't mind a bit of marijuana, so that's a tip. <laughs> <laughs> ethical on that side, on that front. <laughs> yeah, we were discussing it on the way down here, and I think similar to how you sort of looked at, you know, pharmaceutical companies, I think their mission generally is is pretty ethical, you know, like wanting electric vehicles from a sustainability point of view. So at sort of a surface level, in my opinion, it is absolutely an ethical uh, approach. However, then if you dig a bit deeper and think about how they perhaps treat some of their workers in, in their China factories, you know, forcing their factories to open up mid-COVID in California, there's probably a few things under the surface that might sort of slide it back towards a, a, an unethical investment. What's your thoughts, Ren? For me, it's, I guess, the the question is, do, do the ends justify the means? And you're right that the treatment of workers by Tesla is probably unethical if looked at in isolation. I guess in the lens of history, if we look back on Tesla and the effect that they've had on the world, I think we're going to resolve that it's been profoundly positive and incredibly important in the clean energy transition that is underway. So in that sense, I think I would fall on the ethical, but maybe... Elon Musk just needs to call it on Twitter and uh, <laughs> and uh, stop making so many decisions by himself. Where do you sit on it, Adam? Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Uh, well, I mean, these are the exact discussions we're having um, in our team. And I think uh, previously, because, I mean, Tesla not being the best in terms of its treatment of staff is not necessarily a new thing, but I always sort of thought, you know, like in terms of the system change we need, uh, particularly around climate, you know, Tesla just does play such a huge role there. And they're very ambitious about their plans. And you sort of think, well, you know, Tesla is the sort of company that has plans to sort of change the world and our energy systems and, and help us live um, in a better world. But it kind of gets... A, harder to ignore some of these workplace issues when uh, you're sending your workforce in against public health advice and you're doing that in a really deliberate way and a really provocative way as well. So 
I think our team is leaning towards uh, removing Tesla from, from our portfolios. But, we'll, you know, we'll be making a decision on it on, in the next few weeks. And it's one that we get a lot of feedback from our members about. You know, people tend to either be really, really positive about Tesla or really, really negative on it. It's a very um, divisive uh, company for, for, our, for our members. If you were to, say, remove them from your portfolio based on, you know, what we just discussed, how long do you then give them to sort of review that decision? How long do we give Tesla? Yeah, like uh, yeah. yeah, like what's your sort of re- review process on companies like this? Well, all the yeah, time. Yeah, <laughs> and and that uh, engagement from us is probably unlikely to to um, get noticed. So obviously that's putting the cart before the horse a bit and sort of suggesting that our engagement won't work. But equally, we've had examples, for instance, earlier this year where we had an engagement with Nike, who is equally a very very large company, and spoke to them about their treatment of particularly female workers and got a really great engagement back and a really genuine engagement back. So it's not out of a question that we'd get a response from Tesla. I think Tesla and uh, Elon Musk in particular just are not great at showing that they take advice well and and willing to listen to these sorts of things. So we'll give an opportunity. We won't let it drag out too long. Uh, We'll probably set a deadline of, you know, can you, you know, respond to us within a month? And then if the decision is made to divest from that stock, I mean, they're a very liquid stock. So we we could sell out of that in days or whenever it's um, convenient for our team to do so. Interesting. So. For those of our listeners who have just joined the show and haven't uh, heard our first episode with you, firstly, we suggest going back and doing that. But in the event that they don't, are you able just to give us a very quick rundown on how a kid from Broken Hill went to start Australia's first ethical super fund? Yeah, so, yeah, because I think it's not a common story here in the finance industry. Yeah, you hear it all the time. <laughs> uh, when I was younger, my family uh, moved around sort of outback Australia a bit. My, my dad had a job where we went into towns where sort of the industry had left town and he sort of came in and one of his roles was to try and find some, uh, you know, a new industry or, or new places for people to work. And obviously it's a, sort of a hard challenge when you're going into isolated places. Uh, and one of the places we ended up was Broken Hill. So in high school, went into Broken Hill and a really fascinating uh, town in that it still had its industry. It still had um, it still had the mining going on, but I think it's a town that was also looking for something a bit new at the time. But the mine in town is smack bang in the middle. Like it is on the main street. You, you have a coffee at the cafe and you are literally, you know, 50 metres from this huge pile of sort of tailings from the mine piled up into a huge hill. And those tailings are all full of lead. And lead is very toxic, particularly if you're a young person. So if you're a young person in Broken Hill, you have just potentially have very serious uh, lead poisoning problems, which can have awful health effects, learning difficulties, just like a really tough life for people in that situation. But also the mines in Broken Hill, you know, so many deaths, you know, over 100 deaths in those Broken Hill mines. And, you know, you, you don't know anybody in town who doesn't know people who've been hurt or, uh, or have died in the mines as well. So it comes at a huge cost. And then at one point during high school, and actually I'll tell you, I didn't tell this last time, but I had that moment where I realised that the BH and BHP stood for Broken Hill Proprietary. And then actually this, you know, this uh, thing that was quite devastating in our town and had a huge human cost actually was exceptionally profitable for BHP and its shareholders. And actually the way I found that out, which I didn't share last time, was we were playing one of those stock picking games that you do in high school where you get sort of a theoretical sort of $1,000 to invest and you sort of pick a few stocks out and you sort of see how it goes. And uh, BHP was the biggest company uh, listed on the ASX at the time. And so most kids in my class picked it and that's when the teacher sort of told us, you know, BHP is Broken Hill Proprietary. And so that's when you sort of realise, yeah, this huge human cost, 
has been exceptionally profitable for some people and, and you just get angry about it. Mm. And so, you know, I was this angry young kid from Broken Hill who moved to Canberra, went to uni, found an outlet for my uh, activism through uh, student unions and then got lobbied and campaigned uh, myself about whether student union was investing its money and a group of students demanded that we invested in an ethical way, not something I'd ever thought about before. And so we looked at where the student association invested its money, switched it to an ethical fund, which was um, Australian Ethical Investment which also happened to have its office across the road from our university. You know, Canberra's not known for its funds management industry, but the one uh, funds management company in town was Australian Ethical Investment, and it was right across the road. And then after I switched, uh, helped switch my student association's money, I looked into my own super fund. I had a REST superannuation fund at the time and just saw that my top holding was BHP. And so this company that I just hated so much for what it had done uh, to people in my town of Broken Hill I just wanted to switch it. I switched it into an Australian ethical super fund and just felt amazing about it. And so it felt so good that I applied for a job at Australian Ethical and started working uh, in ethical investment straight away. But I guess one of the things for me was I made an ethical choice uh, as an individual to switch my super at that time. You know, I'm you know, 19, 20 years old. I'm doing that in my dorm room at university. But I didn't tell a single person about it. So it was an individual action that I took but I wasn't part of the movement. I didn't help inspire others to do it. I just did it because, you know, I like to consider that I'm an ethical consumer and just do the ethical things when they come up. And so after being at Australian Ethical for nine years, just sort of frustrated that ethical investment is just so much smaller than it should be, you know. I think a lot of people want to invest and use their money in a way that aligns with their values, but they just don't know about it because it's something that people had been doing just as an individual action and not sharing with others. So, I think uh, after nine years there, I just happened to meet a guy called Simon Sheik, who just finished at GetUp, which is a, uh, Australia's largest sort of online political activist organisation, and just thought, wouldn't it be great if we could create a movement out of ethical investment, and rather than making it an individual action, we could help uh, people make a collective action that actually does contribute to system change, particularly around climate change and inequality. So that's sort of where, you know, Future Super isn't the first ethical super fund, but it's I think the first super fund, which definitely is very upfront about having a theory of change, about changing financial services so that it could be part of the system change we need to fight climate change and inequality. It's definitely very loud and I guess proud with that message, which is something you don't see from well, any other super fund really. So Adam, we're obviously living through very strange times and we're interested to unpack what that means both for the ethical investment industry and the super industry. So if we if we start with super in general, I guess generally how have you seen COVID affect the industry? And then we're also interested specifically in this recent government policy around the early superannuation withdrawals. I think it's up to 10 grand this year and 10 grand next year. And if you have any thoughts on that and how it's affected the industry. Yeah, and maybe I'll start on that one. And the early access, I think there's been $13 billion access from people's superannuation accounts in the first wow. um, amount that was um, able to be accessed. And I don't think you can really blame people for wanting to access their super right now. You know, it's, it's a very tough time. A lot of people have lost their jobs. A lot of people uh, in that situation might be struggling to pay their mortgages or pay their rents or put food on the table. And so you can't really blame them for wanting to access some money to help them feel uh, more secure or just pay for the things that are just like necessary parts of life. And I think the super industry has been a little bit tone deaf in focusing on the financial, the long-term financial implications of that decision and saying things like, you know, taking out $10,000 now might 
impact your retirement savings by forty or fifty thousand dollars down the track, because that's not really a fair thing to say to people who need to pay the mortgage now, need to pay, the, you know, feed their families now. And so I think it's really unfair to put that back on people who've chosen to to access their money, because like maybe it is the best financial decision for them right now. And the future can wait, right? The future can wait when you've got to pay your mortgage. But what it is, is like, it's bad policy, but made people have to make that decision and trade off in the first place. You know, the government can afford to help people without having to make people dig into their super and sacrifice their superannuation savings to pay for it. You know, $13 billion is what people have taken out so far. I mean, the government gives all sorts of subsidies to all sorts of industries that maybe we don't even want to give subsidies to that would be better to prioritise people over. You know, we give $12 billion to fossil fuel companies and subsidies each year. You know, it's the same as what people have just taken from their super. Or, for instance, we've just found that we've got $60 billion more available to help people through COVID than what the government thought it had before. Well, you know, maybe it's good policy to pay it back, you know, pay back into people's super accounts what's been uh, taken out over the last few months. So I think that's important. I think, you know, super funds weren't expecting people to be able to draw down their money either. So you've got this situation where super funds invest for the really long term. You know, you have um, some high profile cases of particularly some of the large industry funds who operate with almost no cash in their portfolios at all. And then suddenly having to turn around and find a lot of cash. And I don't think that's been great for sort of long-term portfolio management to be investing one way and then to have to suddenly make a decision to start investing for the very short term and find cash and have to sell a lot of assets. So I think it's been really hard for some funds. I mean, Future Super has been quite fortunate that we have so many members who have been joining us, particularly, you know, after the bushfires and things like that. You know, a lot of people motivated to change, but we just naturally had cash there available to, to pay people out when they needed it. Yeah, I am, I am interested in that dynamic because by the nature of superannuation, they're long-term investments and a lot of what super funds invest in are illiquid assets, big infrastructure projects and stuff like that. Has there been much talk in the industry around like liquidity issues as people redeem and potentially super funds aren't able to sell some of those assets? Yeah, there's been a lot of talk about that and I think it's not just people moving their money up to access $10,000 to help them pay their expenses. But also, these are the times when unfortunately a lot of people switch from um, a growth fund to a cash fund as well. So that also has an impact on a fund's liquidity, having to sell out um, illiquid assets to, to then buy from their in their cash option. I mean, from what I can see, most super funds have managed to get through that pretty well. I mean, there was huge markdowns on some of the infrastructure assets, particularly for some of the industry funds as well, at the start of, uh, around the start of sort of COVID. You know, I think the things that some of the industry funds in particular like to invest in, like airports and coal ports and toll roads, they're just done exceptionally poorly. So I think the markdown on some of those illiquid assets was greater and uh, swifter than what we've seen uh, in previous downturns. Mm. I'd like to touch on that. So you, you mentioned, you know, the performance of some of these funds, perhaps versus future super. How has COVID affected the ethical investing landscape? And you also touched on on the fires as well, and I'm sure that's had... Mm a positive impact, I guess, on the funds coming into uh, the ethical investing universe. So how are you seeing the play there between ethical versus, I guess, normal market index? Yeah. Yes, I think um, there's two things there. I think one is the flows into um, ethical super funds, but also ethical managed funds, ethical ETFs have really spiked over the last six, six or nine months. I think the bushfires really made things like climate change just really front of mind. Like you couldn't, you know, you couldn't exist over summer in Australia without 
being reminded of climate change and also being reminded that our money plays a role in that. And I don't think any of that, um, from what I've heard from both from other uh, ethical super funds as well, I don't think that growth has slowed down uh, as COVID has sort of replaced the bushfires as our <laughs> front of mind emergency that we're dealing with. So I think that's one thing. I think flows into ethical products are just uh, are very high at the moment. But the other thing we're seeing is on the return side. So the data from super ratings to the end of April showed that out of about 220 balance funds over the last year, only about 20 of those have produced a positive return. And the median fund uh, return for a balanced fund to the end of April was minus 1.76%. So end of April, the typical Australian balanced superannuation investor has had a negative return. But those 20 funds that had a positive return of that period, most of those have some sort of strict criteria around investment in fossil fuels. So uh, of those 20, you know, Future Super's got three different balanced options that were in that 20 that got a positive return. We've got Verve Super, which is an ethical fund for women, had a positive return. Australian Ethical as well. Vic Super Sustainable Balance Fund, which has a, a good screen on uh, fossil fuels. Catholic Super's Positive Impact Fund, which has uh, exclusions on fossil fuels as well. So it's probably fair to say that, uh, or not much of a stretch to say, that the difference between a positive and negative return over the last year on a balanced super fund was that Superfund's decision whether to invest in fossil fuels or not. How much do you think that has been the price of oil that has just collapsed this year? That has a short-term impact. But I think what we're also seeing is fossil fuels have been deteriorating people's returns for a very long time. And so it's sort of, you notice the deterioration more when it happens like a negative oil price, but it's been consistent for the last 10 years. So uh, if I look at the Australian share market uh, and I see that the Australian share market over the last 10 years increased in value by about 60%, but the fossil fuel energy sector over that same 10 years declined by 50%. And if you look at sort of three of the largest companies in that sector, like Woodside Petroleum, Santos, Oil Search, they all dropped by between 60 and 75% over the last decade. So you've got an ASX, which comparative to uh, other global share markets is really, really overweight in fossil fuels. And fossil fuels are doing terribly. We're talking minus 50% compared to the market in general doing positive 60% over 10 years. And then if you look at it at a global uh, context, so if you think about like a MSCI type benchmark, over the last 10 years, global share markets have increased by 77%. Fossil fuel energy sector dropped by 36%. So it's not just an Australian thing, it's a global thing as well. Over the last 10 years, share markets have done really, really well fossil fuel companies, dreadful, absolutely dreadful. And it's kind of surprising in one way because this is not sort of secret information or hard to get information. This is very easily accessible information for all investment managers. Uh, and it's sort of kind of amazing that there's not more of a conversation about how bad fossil fuels have been for our returns over such a long period of time. That's fascinating. I, I'm just watching Bryce dump his oil stocks on his brokerage <laughs> account right now. <laughs> sell, sell, sell. <laughs> so we touched on oil there, which has obviously been a big story throughout this COVID period. Demand plummets and supply increased. There was just nowhere to store it and no one buying it and the price went negative for the first time ever. But I'm sure there's plenty of other sustainability trends that have been accelerated or potentially decelerated through the COVID period. So when you when you look at the sustainability landscape and the trends that you guys are particularly focused on, has there been any noticeable impacts or changes because of this COVID pandemic? Yeah, there's been a few. So I guess one is, uh, in some ways, COVID and sort of how share markets have reacted 
haven't been that dissimilar to previous share market downturns where, you know, extractive companies, you know, fossil fuel companies, mining companies, but also like big banks, they always tend to do a bit worse in down markets uh, and ethical funds tend not to invest in those or sustainable funds tend not to invest in those industries. But things that ethical funds do tend to be overweight in, like uh, healthcare and technology stocks, tend to hold up pretty well during downturns and have held up very, very well during this particular downturn. So, you know, companies overweight, uh, technology and healthcare in particular, have done quite well over the last few months and then our portfolios are overweight in those two particular themes. But, you know, ethical funds tend to outperform in downturns because if you sort of ignore the ethical layer of ethical investment, you're kind of talking about taking an approach of reducing risks in your portfolios. You know, you're trying to exclude companies that have environmental risks, social risks, governance risks, or even just the risk of losing the social license to operate. So it has the effect that when markets go down, you tend to have less risk in your portfolios. So, so those are some things that are playing out now that tend to normally play out in um, downturns and, you know, um, ethical investments tend to outperform over the long term because they do better in downturns. But in terms of the oil prices, I think usually there's some kind of correlation between oil prices and uh, returns from renewable energy as well. You know, they're both sort of energy sector investments. I know from a future super perspective, we don't really get an impact from that as much because we don't tend to invest in sort of the, you know, the listed equity side of renewable energy. We tend to be a lot more in the providing debt to projects, but also owning equity directly into renewable energy farms. And they tend to have power purchase agreements in place with reliable backers like state governments or big companies. So they're the sort of things that we can invest in and they're going to be pretty robust. You know, if you've got a state government backing your um, solar farm and, and paying an agreed price on that, you know, that tends to hold up pretty well. I know those aren't sort of the things that, you know, the general person uh, without a lot of money can invest in, but there's probably also some other things that Future Super invests in that might be a bit more accessible to sort of the average person. So like as an example, Future Super and also the Clean Energy Finance Corporation as well, fund rooftop solar for individuals through rate setter. So that allows people to fund uh, putting solar on their own roofs. It's peer-to-peer lending. So that's something that um, a fund like ours can do, but equally, you know, someone who, who doesn't have a huge billion-dollar portfolio can do as well. Yeah, Bryce and I are both signed up to Rate Setter. Bryce mm. specifically excluded rooftop solar. <laughs> does, doesn't true. believe in it. <laughs> not true at all. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and obviously it's not. I'm not giving advice to do that. I'm just saying, you know, usually things that super funds invest in aren't available to the average person to invest in as well. But this is an example of something that Future Super is investing in that other people can access as well. Speaking of the Future Super investing universe. Ren and I recently did a YouTube video, a bit of a discussion over a beer on the most sustainable company in the world. And we came across the Corporate Knights 2020 Global 100 ranking of public companies that they deem to be the most sustainable based on a whole bunch of sort of key metrics, mm. resource management, financial management, clean revenue. I'm sure you're aware of it. And the top company that came back was a wholesale power uh, company. And uh, number three was a petroleum refinery. <laughs> <laughs> Both are in two of the top three are in Denmark. One's in Finland. The Netherlands, you know, Scandinavian countries featured quite heavily in sort of the top 10. I'm wondering how far you sort of spread your net in terms of global markets when you look for opportunities to invest or are you, you keeping it more to, I guess, that sort of retail landscape? Uh, no, we look global. Asset allocation looks very similar to, to other super fund asset allocations. So when we, our listed equities, 
is sort of balanced about 50-50 between Aussie equities and global equities, which is, you know, very similar to what other super funds and, and large portfolios are doing as well. And then when we're investing that, we're mostly looking at sort of the larger developed markets, but mostly because if we're doing the ethical screening and the ethical research, it's just a lot more available and a lot easier to do that research within developed markets where, you know, reporting systems are a bit more advanced. So definitely, yeah, we're, we're investing uh, all across the world uh, in developed markets. Nice. It was a petroleum company that made uh, made its number three. You're going to test my pronunciation here, <laughs> but it's uh, Neste Oij, N-E-S-T-E-O-Y-J, a Finnish uh, petroleum refinery that came in with a score of 83% out of 100. So who knows what metrics they scored highly on, but if you were to just look at their group, <laughs> you'd be pretty surprised that it came in at number three. Yeah. And did number one place go to Orsted? It did, yes. Yeah. Yes. Wow, there so, you go. There you know, go. Know your ethical companies. You just <laughs> passed the test. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a really interesting one because obviously they've had that huge transition from yeah. being a fossil fuel company to being a renewable company. Yeah. And we like absolutely love that transition. But obviously Future Super obviously makes a very big deal about being 100% fossil fuel free. And Orsted's transition isn't quite over yet. So yeah. we almost have like this countdown for Orsted <laughs> to just get its final uh, fossil fuels out, which is very soon. Like within, I, I suspect it's within months, right, that um, they finally divest of their last uh, fossil fuel asset. Um, and I know we'd be very keen to add them to our to our portfolio. Yeah, nice. Um, That's very and, interesting. And, and, and what an amazing story of a turnaround. Like, you know, particularly in Denmark, you know, these economies that were based on oil and gas, uh, and just for the turnaround, they've had yeah, a phenomenal, but a company like that can just become a pure play renewable energy company. Well, I have another quiz question for you then, really putting you on the spot, but I asked, <laughs> I asked Ren the same question. Based on the Corporate Knights uh, survey, uh, which I said was uh, the top 100 global companies in the world listed, where do you think the first Australian company ranks and what do you think it is based on their metrics? Oh, boy. Uh, this is a good question. Uh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit of a wild ranking system with a petroleum company coming number three. <laughs> but I reckon these lists always put like one of our big banks towards the top. So I'm going to say I'm going to say maybe like Westpac around tenth spot. Wow. So you're certainly in the right ballpark. It is a bank. It's NAB, and they're coming in at forty two. Oh, yeah. It's almost, it's almost like we didn't have a royal commission. <laughs> we were a bit astounded that one of the big banks is our only representative in the top 50. And then I think the second company to come in was Westpac, as you said, but it didn't come in until number 75. And they're the only two Australian representatives in the top 100. So mind you, coming in at number 74 is Tesla. So (laughs) (laughs) might have to write to this this firm and let them know that they've got it wrong. (laughs) You can rank the rankings. (laughs) I am interested in that observation you made around the banks. And it is, a, I guess, a broader question around uh, ethical investment. Banks obviously have their fingers in a lot of pies and are funding a lot of projects. And a bank like NAB making that list would be funding a lot of renewable projects, but at the same time would still be funding a lot of oil and gas exploration. When you talk at Future about not investing in companies that have you know, any oil or gas or fossil fuel holdings, where do the banks fall on that? Yeah, so so we have chosen to exclude the world's largest finances of fossil fuels. So we exclude 
the 20 largest financers of fossil fuels across all the different fossil fuel categories. And all of the big four Australian banks fit within uh, the top 20 global financers every year. So, so we exclude the big four in Australia from that. But it's also interesting in terms of where the world is moving in terms of providing finance and insurance for projects. So there's about 140 large global financial companies who have chosen in the last year to put on some form of exclusion around lending or insuring to fossil fuel projects, 140. And even since COVID started, when you think these things might slow down, there's been another 30 uh, huge financial companies who've done that. And then on top of that, you have finance companies like BlackRock over summer saying that they would be excluding pure play coal companies from their active investment portfolios as well. So you're seeing this huge global shift away from financing fossil fuels, away from like financing uh, dirty energy. And maybe Australia is a little bit behind on that. But in any case, if you're a fossil fuel company and you want access to finance or you want access to insurance, that's becoming much more expensive. It's becoming much harder to access. You've got a lot less competition for that. And I think it's going to be very, very difficult for, some, uh, for a fossil fuel company to get funding or insurance for a new project. And so I think if people, an everyday person with their superannuation account was thinking, you know, sort of how can I uh, make a change? Not just a super account, a bank account as well, right? How can I make a change that's really meaningful right now? You know, pressuring your bank and super fund to not invest and support fossil fuels. Now's the time. That company, uh, you know, that industry is really potentially in its death knells. And if, if people can really cut off the access that industry has for finance and insurance and its new projects, then, you know, we could really see an acceleration in our uh, clean energy future. So if you're looking for like a real great call to action, I mean, now's the time, you know, the fossil fuel industry could be on its knees and, and you know, a whole bunch of retail superannuation fund investors or bank account holders could be the, the ones who really push it over. This is a really interesting point because, you know, given the huge fiscal stimulus that we're seeing from the government at the moment and also the strong reliance on our coal, gas, iron exports to, I guess, drive revenue for the government and there's going to be a need to pay back this stimulus at some point. It feels like we might be still relying on those industries somewhat from a national point of view, I guess, to get us out of uh, the amount of debt that we are putting ourselves in at the moment. It's an interesting point, you know, if you think about it in context to what you, what you just said. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of momentum around, you know, those those um, green new deals and, and what sort of our stimulus looks like coming out of this. And uh, I think there's some real opportunities. I think something that's really interesting is prior to COVID, I think it was hard to think about anything other than incremental change <laughs> when it comes to moving business and moving our systems, particularly things like our energy system and the way we work. But uh, I think what we've seen over the last few months is that huge disruptive change is possible. And it's possible to think about how to make uh, really quick and swift changes to how we produce our energy, how we live, how we work, how we want our communities to look like. And all of a sudden, not having sort of this brown old deal type economy where we just extract things from the ground and uh, export them overseas, but, you know, have smarter industries and, and, you know, do a lot more exports around healthcare and technology, do a lot more around education, which will need a big boost coming out of this as well. You know, we can look towards that as the industries that uh, really help stimulate our economy going forward. I think people could see a big change now because we've just experienced a really big change. So, Adam, you mentioned the Green New Deal there. And for people unfamiliar with the term, it's a raft of policies that have been bundled together Big debate in America around it at the moment with key faction of the Democratic Party really pushing for a lot of sustainability initiatives, a big government program to 
sort of overhaul the US economy. At the same time, back in Australia, since we last spoke, we have a new leader of the Greens, Adam Bant, who's uh, promoting a model of green capitalism. I guess from from your perspective, what does that mean, this, this idea of a Green New Deal or a, a green capitalism? And for you know, retail and super investors out there. What does that mean from an investing perspective as well? Yeah. Yeah. So I think, um, as I say, like at the moment, uh, particularly in Australia, we have the brown old deal, right? Like we, we have an economy that's still based far too much around digging up resources and exporting them. And there's really not a lot of future in that. And so what a Green New Deal about is about is it's not just about you know, energy and how healthy our environment is, but it's also about how healthy we are, how we want to work, what sort of communities we want to live in. And I think a lot of that is also about like, just if you think about your approach to investment, right, you're thinking at its core, you know, what do I think the world wants less of in the future? And what do I think we want more of in the future? And you're going to invest your money towards the things that we want more of. And I think, you know, what these Green New Deals are about is saying, we want more of these things and not just in the future, we want them right now. <laughs> so, you know, if you're somebody who's investing, thinking, well, I can still extract a bit more uh, return from the old economy. Well, you know, things like Green New Deals and Green Stimuluses are, are going to make that very hard. So I think it's about, you know, transitioning your money away from being invested in sort of the old industries and old extractive industries and, and into the new ones, which is not just renewable energy. It's about healthcare, technology, you know, uh, you know, our workplaces, all those different areas, and not, not just about renewable energy. We can't predict the future, but we can look to overseas for maybe examples where these policies are ahead of us and where, you know, they've implemented this and changed, you know, their energy grid and their society more generally and uh, make predictions about how that will play out in Australia. So I guess as, you know, uh, people interested in this sustainability and ethical investing space, are there any particular countries that we should be looking at who have implemented some of these policies or are further along on this journey that we can look to and look at their economy and how it's changed to make predictions about Australia? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I'm not sure any any particular countries uh, cover this whole raft of uh, different types of things really well. I know in Europe, for example, decentralised energy and renewable energy uh, is more advanced than what it is in Australia. I think there's also a few countries around Europe who've had days where they produce all their energy from renewables, as an example. It's kind of easier to answer this question by saying who not to look at, right? Like Australia, the US, like that's, <laughs> that's, that's like, it's easy to find the places where not to look for examples of doing this well. Yeah, it, it, it's probably not the most satisfying answer. <laughs> no, that's, that's fair enough. <laughs> I guess then the, the flip side of that question is when we look at Australia and, you know, where uniquely positioned in a lot of ways and in other ways we're different to you know the countries of Europe and stuff like that what do you think the big areas of economic opportunity are for Australia to capitalize on this new green economy and these green new deal policies that we'll see across the world you know it's always hard to predict long term into the future right but you think of a shorter term it's probably things that Australia already does really well in and potentially does really well in in spite of not having a lot of government support so for instance I mean Australia is very good and punches above its weight in terms of our healthcare industry you know and it's got to the point now where Australia's largest companies rather than being mining companies are companies like CSL, Cochlear, ResMed you know companies with global footprints doing exceptionally well I think Australia has always done really well in technology and unfortunately, our technology companies frequently move overseas in order to sort of get more support and have been for, therefore have more success overseas. You know, you see companies like Atlassian, which at least still have an Australian base, which is amazing, do great work. But also you've seen our best 
renewable energy technology uh, research go overseas frequently as well and, and other com- uh, countries capitalise on that. And I also just think things like education, right? It's not an easy thing for people to invest in, but uh, in terms of running our economy, you know, uh, education has been an amazing thing for Australia for a long time. And I think uh, that's also an industry that's having a really hard time through COVID and needs a lot of support coming out of it. Adam, before we wrap up and uh, head to our final three questions that we always ask our guests before we close the interview, we've now introduced a, a question to put everyone on the spot, and that is a bold prediction for where they think the markets might end in 2020, or in this instance, perhaps something that you think will be a surprise packet for the uh, ethical industry. So do you have a bold prediction for how the markets <laughs> might finish in 2020 or a company that might end up on your watch list that you think at the moment is a no way or what could what could a bold prediction be? Oh, wow, this is good. I mean, markets are weird, right? Like I know that obviously this, people will listen to this podcast at all sorts of different times and won't know the date, but we're talking, but like... Well, we can, we can preface it. It's the tw- <laughs> it is the 26th of May. <laughs> it's incredible that despite everything that's happened, despite the huge amounts of unemployment, despite the huge amounts of uncertainty, share markets are doing pretty well, right? Like yeah. it is such a strange environment to be in that seems so detached from reality and from everyday people's lives. And obviously it's a reflection that the Australian government and, and the US government and other governments so, you know, overseas as well have chosen to sort of look at share markets as one of their indicators of success and have sort of helped support big companies through this potentially more so than people. But it's weird that we, uh, you know, with the levels of unemployment we've got, with the amount of disruption we've had, that share markets have been as resilient as they have been. What's my prediction? I think share markets will end the year where they are now. It's not very bold, is it? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, it could be. (laughs) Uh, I did so much hedging in the lead up to it and then just gave... um, things will just be the same as they are now. (laughs) That's good risk management from someone who works in the super industry. (laughs) So Adam, as Bryce said, we always like to finish these interviews with the final three questions. I'm sure we asked you them last time, but it'll be interesting to know if if you've updated your answers at all. So first one, do you have any must-read books? Yeah, I've been doing heaps of reading (laughs) for the last couple of months, Uh, same as everybody else. I read a book called Red Notice, which uh, you might know is the story of uh, Bill Browder, who was one of the first Western investors to go and invest in Russia and in those countries and uh, made a lot of money out of it. And was just really fascinating to read about a hedge fund manager going into um, those countries and operating as those markets were opening up to investors. So, so I found that really fascinating. And obviously, you know, it was a bit of a Wild West <laughs> sort of environment. The other thing I, I um, and this has nothing to do with investment, this next book, but just a book I really liked. I read Educated by Tara Westover, which is just the story of this person who grew up in a really sort of isolated and uh, fundamentalist Mormon conspiracy theorist type family in the US and reading a story of somebody who's the same age as me, but, you know, reading this book, it sounds like they were born 100 years ago and just found that really fascinating. Anyway, but I love that book. Uh, so that's, um, that's my recommendation. has nothing to do with investing. Just a good book. <laughs> Red Notice is epic. I've read that. It's a great read. Yeah, yeah incredible. Mm. Yeah, and, and phenomenal to think that markets were like that and someone uh, like him could come in and make so much money in a place where nobody else was looking and where, yeah, yeah, just yeah, mm. really fascinating. This is completely off topic, but I listened to a podcast recently about frontier market investing, which is like, forget emerging markets, it's going to step further 
and investing in like the most dangerous and unloved markets. And it seems like a fascinating job. <laughs> so maybe we'll we'll get an uh, Equity Mates Frontier Markets Fund going at some point. <laughs> what is the most dangerous market? Uh, he was talking about investing in like Iraq and stuff like that and uh-huh. just finding all these companies that were good cash flow positive but just were undervalued to the nth degree because who who's doing... You know, likely to stay that way. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, that's true. What's the catalyst for growth? But um, yeah, fascinating. A li- little bit more interesting than researching the ASX 200, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so the second question, Adam, is what's your go-to source for investing information? Yeah, I think I'm going to give almost the exact answer I gave a few months ago. And I think partly it's because as an ethical investor, but also as a rules-based and indexed more style investor, I don't tend to have a lot of go-to sort of investment publications, things like that. But what I do get a lot of my information from is just chatting to lots of other CIOs, asset consultants, that sort of thing. It's been a fascinating couple of months chatting, particularly to other super fund CIOs who are just dealing with the exact same issues and things that uh, Future Super is. And also been fascinating to sort of hear them and how they're going to respond and how they are responding and their trustee boards are responding to the current crisis. And funnily enough, you know, you have a lot of super fund CIOs saying markets are doing pretty well. They're not confident in it. They've been building up lots of cash to allow people to access their money through financial hardship, but probably they're just going to sit on cash for a bit longer because it's hard to know, you know, where to look uh, next in terms of where to invest. So, yeah, so it's just been really interesting to, to chat to lots of other CIOs over the last couple of months. The flip side of that question is for people who are interested in the ethical side of ethical investing and want to do more reading or research on, you know, the sustainability attributes and the where these companies fall from an ethical standpoint. Are there any particularly good publications or, you know, rankings or anything that you think people should look at? Uh, There's not a whole lot that's publicly available in terms of rankings of Australian companies and things like that. You know, it tends to be part of data that's sold, commoditized and, and sold to fund managers and not generally publicly available. So there's not a whole lot there. I mean, I think things like ethical consumer guides are a good way to get an understanding of the ethics of particularly consumer-based companies. In the US, there's some really interesting groups operating this space who do make their information more publicly available. So groups like As You So, they uh, rank companies on all sorts of different criteria, but they're also really open about the advocacy and engagement they do with companies and, and the work they're doing to try and change companies. So I think that gives a really interesting insight into how an advocacy group is using traditional investment style engagement to try and make change and rather than doing it behind closed doors, just being really open about it. So I think that's a really interesting resource to look through and, and, and read. Nice one. And then the final question that we like to end the interview with is when you think back to your, you know, early days at Australian Ethical Investment or when you were um, a kid in Broken Hill playing the share market game for the first time, (laughs) what advice would you have for your younger self? Yeah, I think one of the bits of advice I'd give my younger self when I was starting out in um, the investment industry, and this comes from somebody who came in more as an activist to begin with, rather than somebody with a finance background, was just understand that, you know, investment in finance is just not as complex as people are making it out to be, you know, and and I know this is one of the reasons why you have this podcast that makes it so much more accessible. (laughs) Um, 
But, you know, it's, it's an industry that's built around trying to intimidate and confuse people. And it's not a very open and transparent industry. It's one that uses jargon so much. But generally, if you feel that something's not right, if you feel that people are just trying to put one over you, you know, chances are it could be, but you could be right. So I think that would just be like, just have the confidence to just trust your gut and, you know, ask a lot of questions and really question people when it feels like they're trying to confuse you with financial jargon. One of the other things, I mean, one thing I do fairly regularly is try and help particularly activists to understand finance better when they're having conversations with investment managers or super funds. So if you've got a divestment, fossil fuel divestment campaigner who wants to talk to a super fund trustee or a chief investment officer about finance, they're just really worried that they'll get sort of just all this jargon thrown at them, that they'll have things thrown at them that they don't understand, you know, things like tracking error just always get put forward as a reason not to do things like divestment. But if you're just a general person, you don't know what that means. So, you know, I feel like, you know, I spend a lot of time helping teach people basic concepts where, you know, it helps people understand better. And and once you understand arguments like tracking error, you think, well, if fossil fuels are so bad and they produce such bad returns, why would I want to track that? The tracking error is good, right? And therefore you trust your gut. You know that tracking error is good. (laughs) You know, like you don't want to track negative returns. So that's what I'd give. If I was to give much more short-term advice, uh, pre-pandemic, I should have got a cat. I would be fine. <laughs> I've, I've been working and living from my lounge room for a few months and, uh, you know, having a cat to talk to, I think, um, would, would have been good. You just need a Google Home or something. You can talk to them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Completely agree. You know, the, the world of finance is unnecessarily complicated and we have a lot of time for people like yourself, Adam, who are doing what they can to try and, I guess, demystify that and make it easier for for people to understand. So a great way to finish the interview. And I guess a massive thank you for coming on the show. As always, it's been an entertaining and, and fascinating conversation. So we look forward to continuing on the journey of Future Super and I'm sure we'll keep in touch. And, you know, a lot of our audience would certainly appreciate you coming back on and updating them on a space, as we said right at the start, that's sort of red hot in terms of interest for our community. So thanks for your time. Great. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for listening to Equity Mates Investing Podcast, a production of Equity Mates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Equity Mates Investing Podcast is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances, or goals. The host of Equity Mates Investing Podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.